You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, July 27, 2020. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Alex Dieterer talked to Forrest Gilmore, Executive Director at Shalom Community Center, about a virtual fundraiser to benefit its homeless shelter. More on that in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, a few minutes with the mayor. In today's segment, Mayor John Hamilton talks about the future of reopening schools, the statewide mask mandate, and the spread of COVID-19 in restaurants and bars. But first, your local headlines. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton said Indiana University will not test all students before arrival on campus during a July 24th COVID-19 press conference. He said this is due to a lack of testing in Indiana. A lack of testing, it's really important to name this problem. Um, there's some um, debates about this, but uh, in Indiana, we have, we have seen it's a major impact in our community. Some of you know, I'm sure, people who have not been able to get testing. But a major change uh, came because Indiana University, which wanted to require tests before every student came back to campus, essentially was uh, flummoxed uh, and could not do so because of the lack of testing availability in Indiana uh, and, and also around the country. Uh, the lack of the availability of that testing meant they could not test and require tests from all the students to be done uh, within a 10-day period before their arrival. Indiana University is going to do, I know they're working very, very hard to do all that they can. They're going to test all the students as they arrive, uh, which is helpful. Uh, but I, I think the, the the bottom line of that is we can probably expect uh, several hundred people with infections to be coming to our community in the next several weeks, which is going to put more pressure uh, on our uh, local um, epidemiology, if you will. Monroe County Commissioner Julie Thomas said free face coverings are available to any person at the north door of the Monroe County Courthouse on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thomas said a township assistance fund is available to any resident of Monroe County for help with utility and rent payments. We're working with all of the township trustees to make this happen, and every resident of Monroe County has a township trustee. So if you are having if you're struggling, we know the moratorium is ending on uh, payments with things like utilities and rents and, and unemployment is changing uh, this week. So if you are concerned about making ends meet and keeping a roof over your head, please contact your township trustee. They have a lot of information for you and a lot of opportunities to get help. Thomas said beginning today, funds will be available to local businesses for outstanding payments. We are going to be providing um, CARES funding that came from the federal government to the state uh, to the county that we, beginning on Monday, will provide some CARES funding for local businesses and social, social service agencies who have had outstanding expenses that have not been covered by other um, means, such as a loan, a grant, um, or other um, programs. And we will have that form on our website uh, to submit receipts 
Thomas said the county website is co.monroe.in.us. Monroe County Health Administrator Penny Caudell said face masks must completely cover an individual's face. She said this does not include crocheted masks. She said the CDC changed their release guidelines for patients to be asymptomatic for 24 hours before release, opposed to the previous 72 hours. President of Indiana University Health Brian Shockney said a surge in cases has occurred. He said COVID-19 admissions continued to increase since June 25th. We, in the last couple days, have seen an alarming trend. And I just want to remind you that this trend includes those who um, are admitted and the turn of those discharges as well. And so this is our census, our daily census, not total numbers. Um, So we are, are concerned about what we're seeing. Shockney said Monroe County had one of the highest increases of positive counts. He said this is not counting symptomatic patients awaiting test results. Caudell said due to rising cases, the health department is suggesting schools to postpone reopening or consider their plan B for reopening. Shockney said the ventilator counts are down due to high flow oxygen. Ventilators are a good way as a last resort for uh, ventilation and oxygenation of patients. High flow oxygen has become the new way and the best way to treat patients. So while we do have a great supply of ventilators, our, most of our COVID patients are treated now on high flow oxygen. Assistant Vice President of Strategic Partnership at Indiana University, Kirk White, said a team of contact tracers was hired for the IU community. He said all contact tracers would work together between campus and the city. Shalom Community Center hosted a virtual sleepout over the weekend to benefit its homeless shelter. Participants slept outside in their yards this year due to COVID-19. Shalom raised over $40,000 by the end of the weekend. WFHB correspondent Alex Dieterer filed this report. Bloomington's Shalom Community Center hosted their second annual Solidarity Sleepout last Friday, an event in which local participants raise funds and awareness for people experiencing homelessness in Monroe County. Due to the unforeseen circumstances of COVID-19, this year's virtual sleepout participants spent the night in their backyards or living rooms in order to maintain social distancing and ensure the safety of all those involved. A Bloomington-based nonprofit, the Shalom Community Center is dedicated to aiding and empowering people experiencing extreme poverty, especially hunger and homelessness. Executive Director of the Shalom Community Center, Forrest Gilmore, shares more on how the sleepout was affected by the parameters set by the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, certainly when COVID came, it was scheduled for early May. Um, that's generally, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, when we did it last year and uh, in between Little Five and and finals were uh, for IU and a good time in terms of, you know, weather and not too hot and not too cold um, and uh, just a good time of year to do it. But that was also, you know, the, the heart we started to, you know, the COVID started to really create a lot of um, stress in, commun- in our community in, in March. And that's right around when we started to do all of the, preparatory work to get going to prepare for an event and we realized pretty quickly that we weren't going to be able to do it the same way so we postponed it um with the idea that we would think about a different way to do it um, we ended up doing it uh we ended up calling it a virtual sleep out and we did we we're going to do it at the end of june but again a lot of uh covid was very stressful and uh the um all the issues and concerns around black lives matter too drew um a lot of rightful attention 
to those uh, to the, the issues of you know, racialized violence. And so we, we postponed it one more time uh, till to this last date that we just had it last Friday. Our biggest goal was to bring people together and help people um, you know, learn about the issue and, and fundraise our biggest, um, I, I think if we had a concern, we were able to, to uh, fundraise in this climate, uh, given um, the needs and, and how so many of us are um, being drawn, our attention is being drawn in many different directions. Many people are dealing with issues related to the economy, um, and of course, the illness, coronavirus itself, and and other issues um, that are really you know, taking our attention and efforts and should uh, be. So we had no idea whether it was going to be a successful event or not. Um, so uh, so if, if anything, any concerns we had with that, we weren't really worried so much about, for example, people's safety or things like that. We felt pretty comfortable that this is a relatively um, uh, safe event for people to do and participate in. The sleepout began Friday at 8 p.m. and ended the next morning at 8 a.m. Participants created donation pages to raise money as they slept out, raising over $46,000 with money still coming in. It was definitely very different uh, than a year ago. Um, and we did a lot of um, connecting on online, uh, both with the sleepers, you know, the people who were sleeping out, as well as the larger community, we had a storytelling event that you know a little storytelling event that night, and we had some participants uh, share on Facebook Live, which was uh, really sweet. And we also had um, you know some of the sleepers, the sleepout folks, um, connect uh, through uh, Zoom during it. That wasn't public, but that was just amongst the people who were sleeping out and giving them a chance to process the experience and you know talking about what they hope for and but they got out of it. And so we, I think we actually learned some things in this about things we might be able to carry over next year if, if we're able to go back to a more public uh, event like we had a year ago. I think there are some things that we'll still incorporate from this year that went, went really well. Last year, the Shalom Community Center raised over $25,000. The goal of this year's Solidarity Sleepout was to raise $50,000. This sum is about a third of the annual costs of a Friends Place shelter. A Friends Place is the only non-religious emergency shelter for adults in the Monroe County region. The shelter provides 40 safe and sober beds for adults in the area who are experiencing homelessness, 28 for men and 12 for women. A Friends Place provides hope and support as people find their way back home. That's another amazing thing about this is that we we uh, uh, beat last year by twenty one thousand um, dollars. So again, really remarkable year. Um, and I think it's important when people talk about money like this that all of those dollars are going into supportive services for people. So that's a shelter bed, that's uh, supportive services and care, that's um, all of that to, you know to help people not only have a safe place to sleep, but also um, you know, the opportunity uh, to to get back home. <clears throat> and so the shelters are really driven by that. We really, Friends Place is really driven by not only having a safe place to stay, but, but how do we get you back, uh, back to a home? The funds raised through the Solidarity Sleepout help finance the $480 daily cost to run the shelter. A breakdown of what the donations support are as followed. $12 provides a night of shelter. $36 provides a weekend of shelter. $84 provides a week of shelter, $372 provides a month of shelter, and $540 provides 45 days of shelter, the average stay for a guest at a friend's place. People can still support uh, the sleepout if they'd like to, and um, and uh, the website is www.mightycause.com 
slash event slash sleepout2020, mightycollins.com slash event slash sleepout2020. So if people still do want to um, support it, that's still possible. Any uh, donations uh, that are made to it will still go um, to support the programs. For WFHB, I'm Alex Dieterer. WFHB correspondent Katrine Bruner talked to Liza Black, assistant professor of history and Native American studies at IU, about the Dakota Access Pipeline shutdown. For more on that interview, we turn to WFHB correspondent Katrine Bruner. On July 6, U.S. District Court Judge James Bosberg issued a ruling requesting that the 1,172-mile-long Dakota Access Pipeline shut down for further environmental review by the Army Corps of Engineers. In 2016, both natives and non-natives set up camp to protest against the construction and finalization of the Dakota Access Pipeline project. The pipeline caused concern in contaminating the Missouri River, which is the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's drinking water supply. But the main reason for such widespread protests and a rise in news coverage seemed to be more on the general topic of indigenous people's rights to their land and preserving the tribe's heritage. The first protest camp was in April of 2016 at a spiritual camp called Sacred Stone. Members of the Standing Rock Lakota and other Native American nations stayed there. The numerous Standing Rock camps were all located about an hour south of Bismarck, North Dakota, with a mix of tribes, non-Native supporters, environmental advocates, and reporters. I spoke with Assistant Professor of History and Native American Studies at IU, Liza Black, on the pressing topic of Native rights and why it is an issue that should be spoken about throughout our lives. Black has a PhD in history and is the author of Picturing Indians, Native Americans in Film 1941-1960, to which will be out in October. Currently, Black is working on a new project focusing on the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. She is also a proud citizen of the Cherokee Nation. During the 2016 protests, Black was teaching Native American history at the University of California in Santa Barbara. She said that during that time, she followed closely on what people were doing both in person and on social media. She also brought her own thoughts to the classroom through her lectures and assignments. I just really tried to create awareness about the issue on social media by being connected to people who were involved on social media. And then I brought it into my teaching to both increase awareness and also sort of test them, literally test them on their understanding of the issues. After the heat that the protests had in the press died down, Black agreed that people paid less attention to the topic in the classroom because of how much it had receded in the media. Like you said, it just really receded in terms of media attention. It just really receded. And that's kind of when I started paying more attention to missing and murdered Indigenous women and started bringing that into the classroom more as sort of a replacement for Dakota Access Pipeline. So in terms of my involvement, I mean, that's really what happened is that I kind of shifted in my own mind and in my own teaching towards that issue. Following the court order this year, Company Energy Transfer in charge of transporting oil in the pipeline made a statement expressing their clear opposition to stop work. Energy Transfer spokeswoman Vicky Granado stated that the company would still be taking orders to continue moving oil in August, despite the possibility of charges and consequences for ignoring these orders. Black stated that she wasn't surprised that Energy Transfer refused to comply with the law. She relates her reasoning to past examples in the history of struggles from Native people against the United States. I'm not the least bit surprised they're willing to do something illegal. I'm not in the least surprised. It's completely wrong that they would break the law. But that is sort of what America does, is it breaks its own laws. It creates laws about theft and crime, and then it breaks them to take Mm -hmm. indigenous land. 
and to desecrate indigenous land. So this, this country is founded on a fundamental disrespect for native people, for native rights to land, and for native cultural beliefs about land and especially about the dead. There's just no respect for that. So I'm not at all surprised about any energy transfer's decision to continue with what they intended to do because there's such a long history of the United States being able to do whatever they want to Indian people and to Indian land. And that's why I believe they refuse to stop. They don't have to because this country is founded on the dispossession of Native people. When asked if there is a clear foreseeable future for the success of ancient Native tribes over the industries, Black stated, quote, As a historian, I can see how there will probably always be a struggle between Indigenous people and the United States, end quote. I can see how this will always be a struggle, that Native people will always be struggling to have their voices heard, to be seen by the media, um, and to be listened to by the media about the histories of, of the nation. So I see that as just a constant that Native people will be always having to fight for their rights to their land. On the other hand, you know, there are many, many nations which have prophecies about a future in which Native people are restored. So I have to sort of you know, pay heed to that as well. And I think that is part of what gives Native people this ability to protest indefinitely and protest in spite of this horrible path of being completely and entirely dispossessed. Black expressed the issue of sovereignty seen in the Dakota Access Pipeline and how there seemed to be a big difference between the environmental activists at the protests and Natives. She also emphasized the importance of treaty rights. How I see the Dakota Access Pipeline is I see it as an issue of sovereignty. So I see it not as an environmental issue. I see it as a question of the Lakota Nation, all of the Sioux nations, having the right to determine what occurs on their land and also having a right to have their treaties upheld by the American government, which created them and signed them. So those are sovereignty issues. Those aren't environmental issues. I mean, this could have been some other exploitation on the reservation by outsiders that was happening. But because it was an environmental issue, it drew in all of these environmental activists. So for the environmental activists, I felt like there wasn't as much interest on their part about the sovereignty issue. They weren't interested in looking at maps, talking about the Treaty of Fort Laramie of 1851. For them, it was about stopping the oil industry. For Native people, I think it was very, very different. For the tribes directly impacted, it was about the history of sovereignty. It was about upholding those treaties. And then for other tribal members who aren't from that region and aren't directly impacted by this, it's about sovereignty. Because if any tribe is able to advance their sovereignty, it becomes legal precedent for other tribes to advance their sovereignty. So that's why it's such an important issue, is that if these tribes who are involved are successful, other tribes can then go to court about land issues and treaty rights for their own people. Black concluded the interview by stating her hope for success in the future for Indigenous people's rights. However, she explained that there is always a push and pull in this issue, bringing in the recent McGirt decision in Oklahoma, for example. As a citizen of a tribal nation, I really hope that they are successful, and I hope that whatever success they obtain is kept. I mean, because honestly, my first thought when I heard that they had this victory was I thought it will get reversed. 
it will yeah. get reversed because so often there's a victory and it's immediately followed by a reversal because the powers that be catch wind of it and, and they, they sort of huddle and they push back. And we can see this happening with the McGirt decision that the Supreme Court just ruled on that was a huge victory for the Muscogee Nation with having their reservation validated. But immediately the state of Oklahoma started calling in favors and pushing to make sure that this would not impact non-Native people in Oklahoma. It just goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that there will probably always be a struggle. But I believe Native people will never give up. And I believe good people will assist them and support them in that struggle. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. Thanks for listening. Now it's time for A Few Minutes with the Mayor. In today's segment, Mayor John Hamilton talked about the future of MCCSC schools, the spread of COVID-19 in bars and restaurants, and the statewide mask mandate, which goes into effect today. WFHB Assistant News Director speaks at length with Mayor Hamilton in today's airing of A Few Minutes with the Mayor. Community members posted questions on our social media via Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, posing questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about current issues. Today, on A Few Minutes with the Mayor, John Hamilton answers these questions. Our first question today is coming from Sarah on Instagram, and they are asking, What is the mayor doing to protect students and teachers? My husband is a teacher at MCCSC, and with cases rising, it's not safe for them to go back to school in person. Well, asking about the school corporation and what we're doing is is a good question. It's a it's very complicated. This is a tough one. Um, I used to serve on the school board, and I know they're wrestling with a lot of competing interests. As a mayor, I'm I'm trying to do all I can to just keep the overall infection rate down. Uh, but I don't envy their decisions, um, and I know they're evaluating lots of options. There are kids who don't learn well outside of school. There are kids whose families uh, really depend upon schools to kind of make their household work. Uh, On the other hand, of course, there are health risks of bringing everybody back together. I don't have a a better answer than saying I'm I'm doing all I can to help the school board. Um, I do talk to them regularly. Uh, And then my general work is to try to diminish the risk of infection overall in the community. And I'm glad our community has stepped forward to be more conservative than the state to restrict infections with uh, restrictions on bars. And now we have the mask mandate, of course, and those things. But it's, it's a tough challenge. There's no perfect answer to that. And if the cases rise amongst children in MCCSE schools, are they ready to move everything back online? And at what point would they do that? Well, I think the school corporation does have a, a bunch of scenarios, and it's. I think it's right that if they have a, an eruption either at one school that would mean a change in protocols at one school or across the whole system, I think they are prepared to change to go all online or go back to what was done in the spring. Um, you know, we're kind of trying to keep scenarios A through M available or whatever, however many we need uh, to deal with the evolving situation. Mm-hmm. And would you as mayor have any say in when schools should close back down in light of a surge? I do have authority under the state uh, law to declare an emergency and to take actions needed to protect safety and health. That's what allowed me to accelerate the restrictions on bars, for example. And it's a pretty general power. 
Um, I would be very hesitant to step in to the school corporation, I would say, because I know it's it's so complex and they're working so hard on it. I would have technically power to change uh, rules at, a, at the school within the city. I would have to say that, you know, the school corporation is much bigger than the city and I would have jurisdiction within the city. And it actually does extend a little bit outside the city under state law. But I, I would really not expect to use that. Uh, I think we'll be working very closely all together. And the next question also comes from Sarah, and they're asking, how is the mayor working with the county health department to keep cases down? We've been watching it spread through restaurants and bars, showing it's not safe for them to be open for dine-in. Well, we've been meeting two or three times a week. Uh, I and the county health department and other health experts and government folks uh, for many weeks now uh, since March. And we continue to do that, trying to coordinate our response. Those meetings are the ones that prompted the health department to slow down the uh, opening up uh, compared to the state. Those are the meetings that also led me to accelerate the new restrictions that we put in place on bars and restaurants in the city. And we're going to continue to do that. To me, it really does remind us why it would be a lot better if we had a national testing program, a national mask mandate, some national standards on these. And, you know, this is a national pandemic and you have hundreds of cities and 50 states all trying to figure out what their approach should be without necessarily having all the science People should know Indiana is, I think, about 49th out of 50 or 51 states' jurisdictions in terms of public health funding per capita. And our public health folks are doing a yeoman's job. They're working all the time. And But the whole public health infrastructure is just underfunded in the state. So our testing, our, our contact tracing, our overall infrastructure is just not what it needs to be. So we're all doing the best we can to, to move it forward. And in last week's COVID-19 press conference, a Monroe County Health Administrator Penny Caudell said that the virus is not a foodborne illness. She said restaurants or other establishments with positive cases are more at risk for spreading the virus to coworkers. Do you think this comment creates any sort of false sense of security when the virus is known to be airborne and can be spread through these establishments? Well, we know, I think it's important just to repeat that we know one of the biggest risks is the spread of the virus through being close to other people, uh, particularly indoors and particularly for 15 minutes or more. That's kind of a standard people are talking about now. So we're working really hard, and I've been arguing and urging for weeks that we do those two things, which is require masks, which we now do, and the other is to try to limit the number of super spreader events where we really can have a lot of things happening that reach a lot of people. It is right that employees working close together inside for long periods of time, and you can picture a kitchen environment where workers are close together. I know people are trying to keep people separated, employees separated, but those that's one of the reasons we have put the, the rules in place about spacing out tables, uh, encouraging outdoor dining, not allowing standing or congregating in restaurants and bars, and um, we're trying to take the lessons from what we see around us. So I, I agree that those two things, masks and stopping the large number of indoor events with numbers of people next to each other for lengths of time is the right path. And does the health department have any employees that follow up with open businesses to make sure that they are following these health protocols? Yes, the health department and the county government and city government are both dedicating, all of us dedicating employees to try to check on those things. Uh, We're doing spot checks and response. We have a hotline now, which is 812-349-3501, where we encourage people to call if they see problems or want to report concerns. 
we got a dozen or more calls over the weekend from that. Uh, I know that the county health and the county government and the city government are all dedicating individuals to follow up on those kinds of reports and calls. And then the last question I have for today is kind of following that same thread of thinking. Um, are there any local groups in place to enforce the statewide mask mandate that begins today? The mask mandate is going to be enforced by a range of people. The first group that will be the most active are those who are proprietors or managers running uh, facilities open to the public. So if you think about restaurants or retail stores or any any place uh, that's open to the public, those proprietors that have customers and employees are going to be the ones who need to make sure that the mask mandate is followed in their establishments indoors. We will get reports on those and contact owners, proprietors, managers, et cetera, if, if we find that they're not uh, implementing those requirements. Uh, but that's the first big set of people who will do it. Just kind of like the smoking ordinance has to be enforced by the owners of bars and restaurants. And so. Second big group of people is, is really all of us. Um, as we go about town and with each other and our family and friends, household members, is to remind each other of the importance of doing this. We don't want uh, vigilantes uh, out there uh, trying to confront and be aggressive with people, but politely and um, reminding folks that the mandate is in place and that it's a way to protect our health. And then uh, and then there is a group uh, that can be law enforcement and other uh, regulators like excise police or restaurant inspectors, health inspectors, fire inspectors, and others who have legal authority to uh, mandate and enforce the uh, compliance with the mask mandate. But I hear from health experts that if, if we do get really substantial mask compliance, 90% or something like that, we can have a dramatic impact on the spread of the disease. So uh, use masks essentially all the time indoors if you're with anybody except your immediate household. Uh, and then outdoors if you're going to be within six feet of people. Do you have a question for Mayor Don Hamilton? Comment that question on this coming week's post for a few minutes with the mayor to have your question answered. To WFSU.